Physicists determine the optimal soap recipe for blowing gigantic bubbles. Ooh, what is it? I don't know. Let's open it. Find out. I need to know. So we can make awesome bubbles. Add glitter to them. Make them sparkle bubbles. I couldn't find it. Oh, you couldn't find the bubble recipe? No. What's up? I'm Rachel. Oh, hey, I'm Grace. <laughs> um, I'm not. We are. I'm not Rachel. Yeah, no, that's Grace. I'm Rachel. Uh, that's Rachel. I'm Grace. Welcome to the podcast. We are Myths and Misfortunes. We're a paranormal and true crime podcast. And each week we pick somewhere different in the world and base our stories on that place. And sometimes not. Sometimes we gotta go a little bit further, like I did today. I was gonna say, you gonna mention that? Yep. <laughs> gonna go ahead and throw that out there. Where are we supposed to be today, Rachel? I'll say where we were supposed to be and then where I changed it to. <laughs> what? What did you do? We were supposed to be in Elliottsville, oh, Kentucky. Yeah. Remember? Yeah, we were supposed to be in Kentucky, but... Well, like I, with my story last week, there just wasn't enough. Yeah, there was there there okay. There's this really cool and creepy place called Wayward Home for Baby Dolls. Creepy as fuck. Yes, it is creepy as all get out, and it's very similar to the doll island mm -hmm. in Mexico. Uh and supposedly they do have some they do have some haunted and possessed dolls. Oh. That's what they've said. But there are no stories on it. Oh. Like, at all. Um, but I really wish there was. <laughs> so that you would have that actual story. So that I would have had a story on it. Yeah. It's uh, not that far from here. No, it's not that far. And we actually could go. That's what I was about to pull up is how far away it was. They do have a Facebook page, by the way, called Kentucky Home for Wayward Doll Baby Dolls. They also have mannequins. See, okay, look, I, I was about to say, I hate that they specify baby dolls because baby dolls are the creepiest. They have baby dolls from, like, everything. They, have, they like also it. have Barbie dolls, Ken dolls. There's actually a, like, really short documentary on Amazon that I was surprised that I was going to watch. Mm. I just haven't yet. Speaking was... of um, documentaries we were supposed to watch on Amazon. Oh, yeah? We were supposed to watch that um, new one um, about Ted Bundy where they interview um, his longtime girlfriend. Next time, next time. Next time. I might watch it without you. Ah, <laughs> uh, rude. Before we get into that... The reason I um, I thought it was so cool though, is because the 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 guy who owns the place mm -hmm. he is a scientist and he's basically using this as a sort of experiment to see how plastics 
Like degrading over time? Yeah. And which different kinds of plastics and how it degrades over time and all of that. And that's why, one, I really wanted to do it because it's a really cool concept. But two, there's no information. <laughs> hmm. 65 Trent Ridge Road, Moorhead, Kentucky. Okay. HWB has no official visiting hours. Potential visitors may send a message to Ben Eisen via the Home for Wayward Baby Doll Facebook page. Drop-in visitors are usually welcome. They just ask that you don't come at midnight, obviously. Why the fuck would I want to do that? (laughs) For the creep factor, I don't know. Yeah, I'll send you this. Thank you. Yeah, because I do want to go and visit it during the daytime. And it's not that far. We actually probably passed it last night. Yeah, because yeah. we drove past Moorhead. Moorhead, yeah. Okay, now to back to our regularly scheduled program. <laughs> now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Today, we are in Adams, Tennessee. Oh my god. Oh my god. My sources for the history are wikipedia.com. And a source that I am not going to repeat until my next story. I almost did that, but I already told you what it was. Yeah, you already told me what it was. (laughs) I mean, you already know what my story is. They don't. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The first settlers arrived in Adams, Tennessee in the late 18th century. One of the first churches built west of the Cumberland Plateau was built on the banks of Red River in 1791. And was also named, rightly so, the Red River Baptist Church. Mm. (laughs) The city was originally incorporated in 1869 as Red River. Super original. It was then later renamed Adams Station in honor of James Reuben Adams, who owned most of the land that City Hall was built on. We're going to go Back just a hair, in the 1850s, Adams was developed as a station on the Edgefield and Kentucky Railroad, hmm. also known as the Ellen Railroad. Oh, yeah. I think I Civil... won that once on Monopoly. <laughs> During the Civil War, the city lost most of its original buildings. So, the name Adams Station makes, you know, a little sense now. Yeah. The name of the city was then shortened to just Adams in 1898. Yeah, station was just too hard to remember. Yes, yes, yes. Very hard to remember. Especially after the discontinued use of the railroad system. Well. Yeah. During the 1920s, Adams was a major pass-through town along U.S. Route 41, which was a main road between Chicago and Florida. However, with the construction of I-25 and I-65 in the 1960s, a lot of that traffic began to slowly dwindle away. Hmm. That along with a lot of the once prospering businesses. Yeah. And that is history until we get to my story. Cool. (laughs) Cool. So, what have you got for me today? Well... I've got a doozy. You got a doozy. On here it says, Adams, Tennessee. However, my story takes place in Nashville, or just south of Nashville. How far away is that? No, it's like um, 
time-wise? Forty-five, fifty minutes okay. away. My sources are Murderpedia, LifeDaily.com, CNN.com, and most of this came from an episode of Snapped. Snapped. <laughs> Snapped, which was really fucking hard to find, by the way. Was it? Yeah. What'd you find it on? Um, YouTube. <laughs> I had you, to YouTube? buy it on YouTube. Oh, boo. Yeah. So. So. We will start with the murder. No, I'm just kidding. Murder. No, we'll start with Martha Freeman. Martha, whose last name I couldn't understand when I watched the episode of Snapped, and also I could not find it anywhere on the internet, was born in Bowling Green, Kentucky. <laughs> Martha, whose last name I couldn't understand and couldn't find, was born in Bowling Green, Kentucky. In 1964. Her family owned a restaurant, and her father was in the Navy, I believe. Um, okay. That's what one of her friends said on the episode. Martha moved to Nashville, Tennessee at 35 years old and got a sales job with the city's daily newspaper, The Tennessean. People described Martha as very friendly, really good at breaking the ice, and when she started working at The Tennessean, that's when she met Jeffrey Freeman a supervisor for a local trucking company. Okay. Everyone thought it was a match. They liked a lot of the same things. They had the same sense of humor. They both just loved to have a good time. They became a couple not that long after they met, and they married in March of 1994 at the local courthouse because they didn't want to make a big deal out of anything. Yeah, same. Um, they just had, like, a few family members and friends with them. Yeah, family, friends, that's it. But, so this is where the inconsistency was in the Snapped episode. Okay. Because it said that she moved to Nashville, Tennessee in 1995. Then it says that she got married in March of 1994, which was before she moved to Nashville. Time traveler's So life, I think they duh. got her timeline just a little bit off there. Anyway, weeks after they married, the couple bought a brand new house in Brentwood, which was just south of Nashville. Uh-huh. It's a pretty upscale neighborhood. So they were doing real well. Like, they were doing so well that Martha decided to make a career change. Oh. Like, I kind of want to make this career change, too. Not gonna lie. What is it? She quit her job at the newspaper shortly after the wedding and decided to get a private investigator's license and start her own company, Resifax. Ah! Go, girl. She would basically perform background checks, get credit histories, do verified rental and employment verifications for, like, mainly apartment complexes. The business started small with just Martha working out of their spare bedroom, but eventually they hired two more employees, and in 2003, Jeffrey quit his job and joined the business. Oh, wow. So they got an actual office after that. Yeah. Jeffrey began putting in more time at the company while Martha kind of backed off from it. For what reason? She was just taking more t more and more time off until basically Jeffrey took on the main role, which me meant that they saw each other very little. Um. Around the same time, Martha became really depressed and was having a lot of mood swings and was finally diagnosed as bipolar. Oh, okay. Yeah. Jeffrey didn't really confide in his friends much about her health, but he was really concerned about it. Once she was diagnosed, she decided to take more time off and focus on her family, mainly her elderly mother. Mm -hmm. Her mom was struggling with diabetes and her health was declining, so Martha moved her into their spare bedroom to avoid having to put her in a home or some sort of assisted living. Yeah. 
and her mother lived with them for a year before she suddenly passed away. Oh. Yeah. Which is, that's a lot to take on. Like, it, yeah. right, especially right after you discover that, like, you've got, like, you're, you've got, you've got your polar disorder. Issues. Like, yeah, you've got a lot of mental health issues going on. And it's also a lot to, like, take on taking care of somebody. Mm-hmm. So, that's rough. Especially someone who needs constant care. Yeah. So, um, afterwards, Martha sort of had a downward spiral. She spent a lot of her time in the room where her mother had lived, and she was also heavily heavily medicated during this time. Oh, no. So, she became really isolated, staying in the house, and Jeffrey spent most of his time at the office trying to save the business that she had started. Mm-hmm. He often worked 10 to 12 hour days, even working on the weekends sometimes. According to a co-worker, Tara Cantrell, despite his long hours at the office, he was desperately trying to take care of Martha. He wanted her to get some help, get treatment, take her medicine, Mm -hmm. and he tried to get her out of the house more. He took her on a trip just 20 minutes north to Nashville for the 4th of July, where they planned on spending the night at a hotel in downtown Nashville. But Jeffrey had worked so much that week that he was just exhausted and wanted to head home after a little while. Yeah. Martha, apparently feeling more energized than she had in months, wanted the exact opposite. They argued and he had it home alone. Martha stayed behind where she apparently had a great time, which we'll get into later. Okay. So by August, just weeks later, Martha had moved out of their home in Brentwood into an extended stay hotel. Yeah. Okay. She told friends and family that she just needed time and wanted to find herself, be alone for a bit. Yeah. Jeffy really supported her and even paid for her to stay there. Like, he, he was really putting You're her first. You're a great husband. But, yeah, like, he was really putting her first. Yeah. So, not long after she moved into the hotel, her friend Tony came by and found out that Martha was sharing the room with another man. A man she Ooh. called Christian. They were having an affair oh hun. and she was giving him money to help support him <sighs> this went on for six months until jeffrey realized what was going on january 2005 jeffrey went to the hotel to convince martha to come home and martha actually agreed to give their marriage a second chance she didn't know how christian was gonna take it so she had tony come with her to tell him he was pretty chill and then he dropped christian off at an apartment he shared with his friends So, Martha moved home, but it didn't really go back to normal. They slept in separate bedrooms, um, but by April, they seemed to be kind of warming up to each other. Uh Uh-huh. At least that's what Martha told one of her neighbors, Raging Beverly. Yeah, Raging Beverly. Raging Beverly. Uh, Okay. It's what it said on the episode. If I got it wrong, blame them. On April 11th, 2005, Martha pounded on Raging Beverly's door and... Walked right into her home, not even looking at Regine in the eye, and said, "A man killed my husband." Your are, face are right we now. sure a man killed your husband? So she asked if Martha had called the police, and when Martha said no, she called nine one one. There was a mention of a shotgun, and it sounded like someone was still in the home. So police and SWAT arrived, and they surrounded the house. And when the SWAT team stormed in. They found no sign of any violence, no sign of an intruder, and no sign of Jeffrey. He wasn't there? Until they got to the bathroom. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. 
Jeffrey's body was laying on the floor inside of a sleeping bag. His head had been wrapped in some type of plastic bag. To me, it looked like a garbage bag. Like one of those really thick ones that you use for like leaves. Oh, yeah. Um, the hefty bags. Yeah. <laughs> he had been tied up in several ways with telephone cords and he'd been strangled to death. He had bruises all over his body, including his wrists, which is how they know he'd been tied up. Mm-hmm. And they indicated that he struggled. Weirdly, the sleeping bag was soaking wet. Soaking wet? Soaking wet. With urine, water? Water. Yeah. Was he drowned? No, he was strangled. That's weird. Mm-hmm. So, police said that the crime scene was so clean that if his body hadn't been laying there, you wouldn't have known that anything had even happened. Yeah. Also super weird was the fact that his body was stiff and cold. So he had been dead for a A while. while. Yeah. Police took Martha's initial statement on the scene and noticed that she had no signs of being physically harmed at all. Uh Uh-huh. So police described Martha as very matter of fact, that she was able to give details about what the intruder looked like, what he was wearing, etc. Only she told police that there was no intruder. She knew exactly who killed her husband. Was it Christian? She just didn't know where he was. <laughs> was it Christian? <laughs> As she was being interviewed, a neighbor told police that his wife saw a Hispanic male running down the street and into a home down the street that was being renovated shortly before police arrived. Officers went to the house and found the suspect hiding in the rafters, seemingly asleep. They had to call out to him multiple times to wake him up. So the man didn't appear to speak any English, but he did fit Martha's description. And when the suspect was brought back to where Martha was waiting in a squad car, she confirmed that they had the right identification. She started screaming, that's the man that killed my husband right there. The man never responded to her, did not look at her, nothing. Like, she did not exist. However... Before that squad car drove off, Martha's friend Tony arrived because he was supposed to fix Martha and Jeffrey's deck. Mm-hmm. When interviewed by police, Tony told them about the strain in the Freeman's marriage, and he also told them about her lover, Christian. Mm-hmm. According to Tony, Christian was the same man that had been sitting in the squad car. Okay. Yes. Rahel Who completely ignored her? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Rafael Rocha Perez, a.k.a. Christian Andrade, was booked that night on murder charges. When given his chance to explain things, Rocha Perez said nothing. Martha, however, couldn't seem to stop talking. In her interview, she admitted to her affair with Rocha Perez and that the two had met on the 4th of July, the night she and her husband had that argument in downtown Nashville. She met Rocha Perez and two of his friends... And well, while she was walking around and invited them back to her hotel room where she said that she had sex with all three of them. Oh, honey. She also told police that when she moved back in with her husband, that hadn't been the affair or the end of the affair with Rosha Perez. I kind of assumed it wasn't. About a month before the murder. This is the, the fucking crazy part. About a month before the murder, Rosha Perez had moved in. To her closet. Oh, no. Yep. He basically had free reign of the house uh, during the day while Jeffrey's 
while Jeffrey was gone, and at night, he stayed quiet. They pulled this off for a month. A month. First of all, why would you want to be in a relationship when you're literally stuck in the closet while her husband is home? You'll see. (sighs) (laughs) I love this story, but I hate this story. I know. So, one night, according to Martha... Jeffrey came home and woke her up and asked why there was a man snoring in her closet. That's a good fucking question. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Oh, God. So Martha said that he decided to go on a walk and told them that if Rocha Perez wasn't gone when he got back, he was going to call the police. Mm -hmm. When he got back, Martha said Rocha Perez went crazy. He grabbed the shotgun grabbed Jeffrey by the collar, dragged him into the bathroom, and closed the door. All she could hear were thumping noises and water, and eventually the noises stopped. Then Rahel came out of the bathroom and says, No mas, nada. No mas, nada. Yep, sure. (laughs) So, Martha told police she spent hours in terror while Rahel cleaned the house. Her reasoning for not going to the police during this time was that He had just killed her husband. Who knows what he was planning to do to her? Which, okay. Fair. Kind of fair. Kind of fair. So police seemed to believe her. Let her go. The crime scene tech searched the house and everything seemed to point to Martha's story being true, including the closet and the spare bedroom full of Rahel's personal effects, as well as some sex toys, lingerie, and some erotic books. They also found a shotgun in the house and evidence of the cleanup. Trash bags, latex gloves, a pillowcase covered in blood, and a beach towel laid out on the floor. Five days later, Martha was testifying as a witness at Rahel's arraignment. She talked about how they met, how terrified she was when she was killing her husband. When, when she was killing her no, husband. No, I read it wrong. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. My bad. How terrified she was when he was killing her husband, etc. But then... Mm-hmm. Rahel's attorney asked her why she hadn't called police in the 16 to 18 hours between the murder and her going to her neighbor's house. They were doing the (laughs) hanky-panky. And turning around. No. Um, (laughs) She didn't have an answer. And that's pretty much when the judge was like, yeah, she's literally just implicated herself. She needs to be charged as well. Yeah. We're done here. One of the prosecutors was like, this does not happen. We've never had a judge basically reading a a witness her Miranda rights in the middle of a testimony. So, over the next few weeks, police spend day and night investigating Martha. They pulled the Freeman's phone records and found a phone call made the night Jeffrey died to his mom at 11 Mm p.m., which in and of itself is not odd because he calls her every Sunday night at 11 p.m. Nashville time. But when they followed up with Jeffrey's mom... They discovered that Martha was the one who made the call. Oh, was she? Yeah. She told his mother that Jeffrey was too sick to talk and that she had given him a Sudafed and he went to bed. On just a Sudafed? Yep. Not even NyQuil, which is going to make you pass out? Just gave him a Sudafed, passed out. Okay. When police canvassed the neighborhood, they discovered that during those 16 to 18 hours, Martha was supposedly too distraught to call the police... She had actually left the house three times. To do what? Twice to walk the dog, and once to drive to the drugstore and pick up a prescription. For? 
I think it was oxycodone. I think. She literally could have called the police at any time during that that day, and she didn't. Especially if she was concerned what uh, Christian was going to do to her. Right. So police theorized that she helped Ryo clean up during that time as well. But the most damning piece of evidence was that beach towel. They tested everything they took from the house, and they initially suspected that they had used it to help during the cleanup. However, instead of the traces of blood they expected to find, they found other bodily fluids. Yeah, that's what I was expecting. Yeah. Using DNA analysis, forensic scientist Donna Nelson was able to determine that Rahel and Martha had sex on the towel, and they both used it for a different kind of cleanup. Clean yeah. But <laughs> Four months after her husband's death, Martha was charged with first-degree murder. After being released on a $75,000 bond, she went home and didn't leave her house for, like, a year and a half. Neighbors called... for food? I I don't know. Neighbors called the police more than once to do a welfare check because they were concerned. Oh, okay. When the trial came around, prosecutors decided to try both Rahel and Martha together, as two separate trials would have become a whole confusing mess, Mm -hmm. and because they had a plan. In her opening statement, prosecutor Katie Miller told the jury that contrary to Martha's claim that she was helpless the whole time, that she helped plan and carry out the murder. The motive? Money. If they got divorced, there was no way that Martha would get the business due to her mental illness and her affair. Mm-hmm. And Martha's attorney said that she wasn't guilty of murder, only the affair. He sure. tried to say it was just two guys fighting over a woman and one guy died. This is not the Middle Ages. We don't work like this. <laughs> According to Rahel's attorney, Martha killed her husband to avoid a messy divorce and tried to frame Rahel because... He was in the country illegally. Hmm. Yeah. And who better to blame than someone who is here illegally? Mm-hmm. And that's why it wasn't too big of a deal that he was staying in her closet. Hey. I mean, it was a big deal, but to I was him, say it's still a big deal. to him, that's why. It wasn't a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So they basically played right into the prosecution's hand by going at each other the way that they did prosecution brought in the medical examiner to show the jury the way that jeffrey was tied up that there had to have been two people involved for a manifest size i think they said it was like 230 pounds Mm -hmm. um one to tie his wrists together one to hold him at gunpoint so he wouldn't struggle too much they also called jeffrey's mother to give uh to the stand to talk about the phone call the night he died where martha said she gave him a sudafed and sent him to bed Mm-hmm. According to the autopsy, there were no drugs whatsoever in his system. Not even Sudafed. Not even Sudafed. So the prosecution suggested that he was either already dead at the time of the phone call or tied up. Mm-hmm. They also posit that the only reason she ran to the neighbor's house in the first place is because he was too big for the both of them to move, and Martha was running out of time because her friend Tony was supposed to be there to fix the deck, and she panicked. Oh. Yeah. The thing is, there was no real evidence that either one of them was actually involved in the murder, just that she waited too long to report his death. Yeah. And that Rahel ran. Yeah. However, they were both found guilty of first-degree murder, which means they were both automatically sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 51 years. I couldn't find anything current about them other than I know 
they appealed and were rejected. Mm -hmm. So I assume they're both still serving life in prison. I assume so too. And that is the murder of Jeffrey Freeman. Isn't that a fucking mess? Uh, I know. I love and hate that story. I know. The entire time I was watching the episode, I was like, he did what? She did what? He was where? He was the closet. (laughs) The closet. Closet. Of all places. If you have a spare room. And like, that was the thing about him being um, an illegal immigrant from Mexico. Yeah. I don't know if I said he was from Mexico. He was. Um, But like, that was like a big thing that his... uh, his attorney was focused on because a lot of his friends had pulled together all of their money to pay for that lawyer for him because the attorney felt like he would probably just go ahead and be arrested and be charged and sentenced because he was an illegal immigrant people automatically assume assume the worst the worst yeah in this case i was gonna say i'm not sure how i feel about it Exactly. Like, there was honestly no evidence implicating either either one of them, either way, except for that towel on the floor. Yeah. Because, like, it was there. Everything else had been cleaned up. They had obviously laid that out so they could have sex after he was dead. Yeah. Which... One, ew. Ew! (laughs) Ew! Yeah. He was upstairs dead, laying on the floor, and you're, like, downstairs boinking each other? What? boinking each other. I, I can't. <laughs> what? That. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to <laughs> move on from yep. that. Alrighty, kiddos. Ugh, I hate that word. What are we doing today, Rachel? We are the Blair Witch Project? No. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? Huh? <laughs> You got me fucked up. What you doing? <laughs> no. Uh, my story this week, everyone, is the Bell Witch. Not the Blair Witch, not but the, the Bell Witch. <laughs> not the Blair Witch, but the Bell Witch. Okay. My sources are wikipedia.com, bellwitch.org, thesouthernweekend.com, skeptoid.com, sharetngov.tnsosfiles.com <laughs> I know that's okay. a long one. And I did start watching an episode of Ghost Adventures, but then you came over, so I didn't finish it. Oh, yeah. My bad. <laughs> that's okay. It's not important. So. You could have told me to wait. Nah, it's okay. John Bell was born in North Carolina in 1752 to William Bell and Anna Jones. Annabelle. Anna Jones. Oh, yeah. I guess it would be Uh Annabelle. In 1782, he married Lucy Williams, daughter of a prominent farmer. In 1804, the Bell family, consisting of John, Lucy, and their children, Jesse, John Jr., Drury, Benjamin, Esther, and Zadok. Um, What? moved to a large farmhouse located in Robertson County, Tennessee. Over the next several years, Mr. Bell acquired more land, roughly 328 acres, which he oh, used damn. on farming. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Uh, 
he was made an elder of the Red River Baptist Church. Oh, as were we they said Mormon earlier? No. Huh. I mean, they might be, but I I didn't know if they had elders in other religions. I think they did. Then yeah. the couple also had three more children after moving to Tennessee. Elizabeth, Jeez. or as she is more commonly known, Betsy, oh. was born in 1806, Richard in 1811, and Joel in 1813. That's a total of how many kids? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Damn. They know how that happens, right? Uh, during that time, when you were a farmer, that's what you did. At least one of them would take on the family business. <laughs> yes. The family lived peacefully for 13 years until one day in 1817. John Bell was inspecting his crops one evening when he encountered a very odd-looking animal sitting just in the middle of a corn row. Oh. This animal is said to have had the body of a dog and the head of a rabbit. <sighs> Obviously, this was a little shocking to him. Uh, y'all? It is said that he shot at it several times before the animal vanished. Mm. He thought nothing more about the incident, at least not until after dinner. That same evening, the family could hear beating sounds along the outside walls of their log house. Nope. I second that. (laughs) The beating continued night after night, and two of John's children, Drury and Elizabeth, also saw strange things in the fields surrounding the house. I'm sorry, how weird is the name Drury? I think it's fun. Drury? Drury, yeah. It sounds like somebody tried to say jewelry and sneeze. Yeah, I know, but still. Okay. No offense if that's your name, but partial <laughs> offense. Drew came across a bird of extraordinary size. Just Mothman. perched on a fence. Mothman. I was thinking more Thunderbird. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But uh, then it just flew off when it was approached. Okay. Betsy, this is a weird one, saw a girl in a green dress who was swinging from the limb of an oak tree. Ooh, don't like that. Now, the only reason this is weird is because this girl was not anyone in the family or anyone they knew. Or anyone around them. Obviously, 300 and... 28 acres. Another sighting is that from one of the slaves of the Bell family, a man named Dean. Hmm. He was apparently followed by a large black dog on the evenings that he went to visit his wife. Hmm. Um, In another story, apparently Dean, while he was being followed by that dog, Mm -hmm. the dog apparently transformed itself into a mule and chased him. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I don't, mm, mm-hmm. I don't like that. So uh, his wife gave him what he called a witch bag. Uh-huh. Like in like those things in Supernatural, the, they ward off witches. Like a gree bag. Yeah. 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 So he had one of those and I guess it stopped after that because there's not many more stories from him. At this time, the sounds that were heard outside the house began to move inside the house. Mm-hmm. Knockings were heard along doors and walls, and when the family, when the family, when the men of the family Mm. went to investigate, they could never find anything. They're in the walls. 
They are in the walls, yes. There were sounds of rats gnawing on beds. I don't like that either. Invisible dogs fighting. And the sound of chains being pulled along the floor. Oh. Not long after that, the children began to complain about their blankets being pulled off of them at night. No. And that their pillows were being thrown on the floor. No. This invisible entity continued to assault the family in their sleep night after night. As time went on, they apparently heard whispering voices almost too weak to understand. Oh. It is said that the whispering sounded like a feeble old woman singing hymns. No. Yes. And during this time, the attacks also began to, like, really escalate. Betsy began to have her hair pulled and she was being slapped by the entity. Fuck. And this actually led to welts being left on her body in, like, actual handprints. Oh. John Bell told his family to keep their problems to themselves, with the exception of his closest friend and neighbor, James Johnson. Oh. At John's request, James and his wife spent the night at the Bell home, where they encountered the same things the family was. After having the bed covers thrown off of him and being repeatedly slapped in the face... (laughs) (laughs) sorry james jumped out of bed and asked the entity in the name of the lord who are you and what do you want there was no response and the rest of the night was super peaceful chill the following morning james told john that the entity was a spirit just like in the bible okay over time the spirit's voice began to strengthen and get louder It was unmistakable if you heard it speaking to you. It sang hymns, quoted scripture, carried on intelligent conversations, and once quoted word for word two sermons that were being preached at the same time on the same day, 13 miles apart. What? Mm Mm-hmm. Two sermons being preached at the same time. That's so weird. Yes, it is. When asked, who are you and what do you want? The voice answered, I am a spirit. I was once very happy, but have been disturbed. The only reason this quote is just a little bit compelling Mm. is that the two youngest boys had found a skull while playing around outside one day. They then proceeded to bring the skull inside and a tooth apparently fell off and into the floorboards. So it's assumed that Teach your kids not to play with skulls. Yes. Yes. If you find a random skull outside, if it's not an animal, don't take it in. I mean, even if it's animal, don't take it in. Depending on the animal. <laughs> if it looks super cool, maybe take it in. But if it's human, tell the somebody. I don't know. John Johnson, who was the son of James Johnson. First of all, John Johnston. John Johnston. John Johnston who was the son of James Johnston, John Bell's friend, created a test for the spirit that no one outside of his family would know. He asked the spirit what his very Dutch step-grandmother, who lived in North Carolina, would say to her slaves when she thought they did something wrong. The voice responded back, Accent at all. Hut tut, what has happened now? Mm. This made a believer out of him. Hut tut. William Porter, another family friend and eventual son-in-law, 
had spent the night one night when suddenly he felt someone climb into bed with him. He recognized the voice of the spirit who was speaking to him and played along with it, which gave him the opportunity to seize it within the bed covers. What? He then attempted to throw the bed covers and spirit into the fire. Uh. However, the closer he got to the fireplace, the heavier the spirit got until he eventually had to drop it. What the fuck? I also had to say, I remember hearing about this, but the first, like, five links I found and was using, it wasn't in them. (laughs) Huh. But I remembered specifically this part from something. So, all of these mysterious hauntings apparently reached down further into into Tennessee, thanks partially to one of the older Bell sons, who was in the military at the time. General Andrew Jackson became very interested in what was going on. Due to the frequent visitors that the Bells had, they were obviously running low on supplies such as food. So, when General Jackson's... Jackson. Jackson. When General Jackson showed up with a cart full of food, everyone was pleasantly surprised and so, so happy. Mm. As the wagon and Jackson's men got closer to the house, it suddenly stopped and was stuck in its new position. Mm. Try as they might, the group of soldiers could not move the the wagon for anything. At this point, Jackson declared, By the eternal, boys, it is the witch! (laughs) From the vegetation, a voice says, All right, General, let the wagon move on. I will see you tonight, boys. First of all, the audacity of this spirit. I love it. Uh, All right, move it on. (laughs) Move it on, boys. I'll see you later. The horses and wagon then began to move again. Just like that. Rather than camping out, Jackson's men just stayed in the Bell's house that night. Among the men was a supposed witch lair. Mm-hmm. I hated this term, and I tried to look up to see if it was actually what it's called, because I thought it was supposed to be Witch Slayer and maybe someone typoed. Nothing came up, so I just left it Witch Layer, but I hate it. Witch Layer? Witch Layer. L-A-Y-E-R. Anyway. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Lay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I would have gone with Witch Feller. Feller. <laughs> the Witch Layer, who apparently constantly bragged about his supernatural exploits. Poor General Jackson had apparently had enough of hearing the nonsense and is said to have said, by the, he loved this phrase, by the eternals. <laughs> by the eternal. By the eternals, I do wish this thing would come. I want to see him run. Mm-hmm. The witch lair. Mm-hmm. The spirit arrived and taunted the witch lair, provoking him to do his worst and to shoot her. Ooh. I also just want to say he's trying to shoot something that he can't see. Mm. But sure, he's, you know, just trying to shoot an invisible person. Anyway, his his gun keeps jamming and it won't go off. The witch is then quoted to have said, I'll teach you a lesson. Before proceeding to beat the living shit out of this witch layer and dragging (laughs) him out of the door by his nose. (laughs) Bye-bye. Just this this whole thing with General Jackson. The spirit proceeded to tell Jackson that if they were to stay another night, that she would uncover another rascal in his group of men. Mm. While Jackson was obviously super, 
super amused by this and wanting to know who the other person was, Mm -hmm. the rest of the men were terrified and just refused to stay for the rest of that first night, let alone another night. Little bitches. Yep. So they were gone the next morning. However, as amusing as this story in particular is, and as much as I love it, there's no real proof of Andrew Jackson visiting the Bells, let Mm. alone witnessing the ghost good story though great story though i love that ghost is ballsy apparently as betsy grew older she began to show a lot of interest in a young man named joshua gardner Mm. they started off as really good friends you know they're still super young so yeah great friends best friends and eventually, with the blessings of their parents, they decided they wanted to marry. Hmm. For reasons unknown, the spirit wasn't happy about their soon-to-be union. Oh. It even apparently repeatedly told Betsy not to marry him. Oh, God. The two could not go to the river, field, or cave to play without the spirit relentlessly just taunting them and bullying them and... Finally, they'd they'd had enough. On Easter Monday in 1821, Betsy met Joshua at the river and broke off their engagement. Ooh, that's sad. Like, it had gotten to be so much. He, as much as they wanted it, they agreed this is what they had to do. Luckily, Luckily, the spirit activity did decrease a little bit after this. I mean, the spirit really didn't like Joshua. At all, for no reason. He was a secret murderer. I was going to say, I mean, they're 15, but also 15-year-olds have killed people, so... Yeah, we that, know one. Yeah. Yeah. Which I might cover one day. Yeah, uh, yes, I hope you do. One theory about all of this. Mm-hmm. Richard Powell, who was Betsy and Joshua's school teacher, apparently had a thing for Betsy... Even before their engagement? I'm sorry, the teacher? The teacher, who's 11 years older than her. Mm, no. And one theory is that Richard was a student of the occult. Oh. And that he had conjured the spirit to push Betsy towards him and away from Joshua. He was grooming her, that piece of shit. Well, I'll get there. Okay. I mean, I'm not going to get there, but we'll touch back on Richard and Betsy. While the spirit backed off of Betsy a little bit, it then began to express its dislike for her father, John, vowing to eventually kill him. Rude. Yeah, very rude. What did he do to you? More theories. (laughs) John had been experiencing extreme twitching in his face as well as difficulty swallowing for nearly a year. Oh. This seemed to only grow worse with time and his age. Mm. By 1820, he was confined to to the house due to his health problems. The spirit then used this opportunity to torment him. Mm. Whenever he would try to walk around the house, the spirit would remove his shoes. So I'm just imagining him walking and the spirit grabbing his foot and just flicking the shoe off. And... Unfortunately, I don't like this part. The spirit would slap him whenever he had a seizure. What the fuck? Yeah, so a real bully. On the morning of December 20th, 1820, poor John passed away. Almost immediately after his death, 
a small vial of black liquid was found in a nearby cupboard. John Bell Jr., you'll hate this part, gave a small dose to the family cat. Fuck you. Who then died immediately. Fuck you. John Jr. John Rude. Jr. The spirit then spoke up, cackling. I gave old Jack a big dose of that last night, which fixed him. John Jr. then threw the vial into the fireplace, which left obviously no proof of anything, but whatever. (laughs) John Bell's funeral was one of the largest ever held in Robertson County. As people began to leave the graveyard, it is said that the spirit could be heard singing a song about a bottle of brandy. Okay. And after that, it really wasn't seen or heard of too often. Then in April of 1821, the spirit visited John's widow, Lucy, who the spirit was very fond of and told her that she would return in seven years. Okay. The spirit kept her word and paid a visit to John Jr. in 1828. They apparently spoke about the origins of life, civilizations, Christianity, and the need for a mass spiritual awakening, which I did not like that last three words, mass spiritual awakening. Yeah. Yeah. That just sounds like... Not good. Yeah. After three weeks, the entity disappeared, promising to visit a relative of theirs in 107 years. However, no visit has been told or recorded. Now, almost 200 years later, that spirit is blamed for unexplainable manifestations that occur near the farm today. One story is that of a young boy who was trapped in a cave close to the bell house. He was rescued by being pulled out feet first by the spirit. Oh, wow. I'm not entirely sure about the authenticity of that, right, but, but it's worth mentioning because that cave is known as the Bell Witch Cave now. Oh. A group from the local Epworth League, which I did have to look up. Yeah, I was like, what is that? I can, I can really only compare it to, like, a Methodist youth group. Oh. I mean, I used to go to youth groups, so. I know, I remember. Yeah. Anyway, they're having a hot dog roast, which they called a weenie roast. Ooh, we forgot to tell them last week when we were uh, driving down, driving over to West Virginia to see the Mothman Museum. There was this tiny place that I really wanted to go oh to God, that we're yeah. going to go to in uh, September called Hillbilly Hot Dogs. And we will be going back, maybe not to eat the hot dogs, but... <laughs> I might eat the hot dogs, you might not. I probably But won't. I loved it. It looked so kitschy and, like, cool. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there, because hillbilly hot dogs. Hot dog. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> because hillbilly hot dog. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyway. Tennessee hot dogs. Same thing. They were having a hot dog roast in a rock quarry near the cave on July 29, 1937.. Dang. The group had apparently been joking about the legend of the Bell Witch when they saw the figure of a woman sitting on top of the cliff over the cave. This caused many of them to flee in fear. Oh, oh yeah. Another story of the spirit being good is from 1944. A woman named Bonnie Hainline had been playing hooky from school. She borrowed a lantern from the cave owner at the time, 
Mrs. Garrison. She had apparently explored the cave several times with her friends over the years, so she was expecting this trip to be like all of the others. However, once she was in the cave, the lantern blew out, Mm. despite that there was no breeze. She then relit the lantern, but almost immediately it blew out again. I hate it when that happens. Me too. Terrified, she crawled along the water path to the mouth of the cave, where she noticed an open can of pork and beans and marshmallows. (laughs) She later learned that the police had found two escaped fugitives in the back of the cave. Uh. So, maybe Bell Witch keeping Miss Bonnie safe there? You never know. So they couldn't find the herb because of the light? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. That's uh, interesting. In 1977, a group of soldiers were visiting the cave. They had been sitting on a rock when one of them expressed skepticism in the legend. Something then grabbed him around the chest. So I'm thinking like she like hugged him from behind or something. And okay, obviously they ran. Yeah, (laughs) they ran. There have been screams from inside the cave, voices laughing, just creepy things. Creepy crave shit. Yes. Creepy crave shit. Yes. I meant to say creepy cave shit. (laughs) I knew what you meant though. <laughs> Fine. Creepy crave shit. It's cool. And okay, this is this is my last like story story part of this. Mm-hmm. And I just really loved it. In 1987, a gentleman by the name of H.C. Sanders had run out of gas one night near the Red River across from the Bellwitch Cave. Mm. As he began walking towards town, a rabbit came out of the woods and began to follow him. Mm. He then walked faster for who knows what reason. <laughs> but the rabbit kept pace with him. Maybe he was afraid of rabbits. Maybe. Okay. It even kept pace with him when he broke into a full sprint and run. Oh. After about a mile, Sanders sat down on a log in order to catch his breath. Lo and behold, the rabbit hops up to the other side of the log, looks at him, <laughs> and says... Hell of a race we had there, wasn't it? Oh, shut <laughs> up. No, uh, shut up. That's what the story said. But that's, yeah, that, I love that story. That's hilarious. It's have you, did you notice that your story last week also had mention of a hare? It did, yes. Yeah. Something about meadow and the green and a hare. Uh-huh. Yeah. Funny. One of the major theories for the Bell Witch case is that the Bell Witch was the spirit of an angry neighbor of John Bell's named Kate Batts. She's Bats. Yes. <laughs> Apparently, they had had some sort of feud regarding the land and Kate vowed to haunt him and torment him after her death. It has since been discovered, however, that Kate didn't actually die until well after John Bell passed away. Oh, wow. So that just kind of disproves that theory a little bit. However, there have been... However, she could have been a witch and she could have sent something spirit. Could have, yeah. Definitely. Because she was... um, Because, you know, back then, if a woman was super like forthcoming about mm-hmm. a lot of things and she was yeah i mean there are tons of stories about people like who didn't like their neighbors who who were like they're a witch because this weird thing's happening to me so mm-hmm. so we're doing that right now it was her she's it was, a witch it was all her actually i have another theory my own personal theory oh okay that i'll um 
mention here in a second. There have been many movies, TV shows, theater and musical productions, and books regarding the Bell Witch. Like, literally, so many. Uh, The first one that I heard about and watched personally Mm -hmm. was when I was like 10 years old. Dad was watching a movie called An American Haunting. Oh! The only reason that I liked this movie so much is because it had the little girl that played in Peter Pan. Yeah. um, Rachel Herdwood. I like, I loved her when I was a kid. And this is where I get into my theory. What I like about this movie in particular is that the way that they play it out. They play it like the Bell Witch is a poltergeist, per se. Because if you think about it, Betsy is of that age. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The preteen, young teenage age when you've got all these raging emotions. It's a tulpa. Or it's a tulpa, yes. Everything's a tulpa. (laughs) Everything is a tulpa. But the, the way that the movie plays it out, which might not necessarily be true, is that It's a poltergeist, the physical manifestation of Betsy, who was being physically abused by her father. Oh. That's the way that movie played it out. I mean, it's not said, like, outright in the movie that that's what happened. Yeah. But it was very heavily implied, especially towards the end there. And coming from a believer standpoint, Mm -hmm. it it makes sense. That he was the one who was consistently attacked yeah because he and betsy were consistently attacked like if this actually happened if he was actually physically abusing her yeah in any sort of way i mean it makes sense because the spirit was lashing out mainly at her and john bell so in the logic betsy was torturing herself because she was repressed she was repressing everything that was happening to her yeah and She was repressing everything that was happening to her and the poltergeist, which was her physical manifestation of anger, rage, hatred, fear, lashed out against her father for what he was inflicting on her. Right. I feel like I'm just repeating myself, though. But because of everything that was happening there, if she was telling herself that she doesn't deserve love, of course, you know, the physical manifestation is going to tell her to not marry Joshua. Right. Yeah. And that she didn't deserve him because of everything that she's done or everything she's been a part of. But then she has Richard come into her life, who is older, which I hate, but who is older, who's more mature, who she can talk to. Who she feels that. like she can talk to. Yeah, who that. she feels she could talk to. Again, I'm not sure if that's what actually happened. Right. But it's something that makes sense. I don't know. <laughs> I just, I believe that theory, I believe. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm the only one who's thought about that. But she was the right age for a poltergeist. Yeah. It sounds a lot like a poltergeist anyway. Yes. Oh, yeah. With noises and throwing things. And yeah. Literally just attaching to two people. Exactly. Normally, yes. normally, I would think it would attach to one. But in that instance, if it was for that reason that it was atta- attacking him too, that would make total sense. Oh, yes. Well, and there have been some shows where I've been watching and they do declare that it's a poltergeist. Mm-hmm. I mean, even like 40-something-year-old people or 50-something-year-old people who are going through menopause it attacks them and it attacks their family for any ill feelings they have towards their family. Oh. So it's like if that feeling is strong enough. Then it'll go after whatever's yes. causing that feeling. Yeah. So last thing, getting out of my theory. 
There is a memorial for the Bell family that can be found at Bellwood Cemetery. There is also a former school, which was built in 1920, that was named for a descendant of John Bell. And the log cabin that they lived in had been relocated to a plot across from the Bell School. Oh, okay. So, and that is the Bell Witch. And I could have gone into more, but... Felt like it was going too long. I did. (laughs) Yeah, that's the way I felt about mine, too. All right, so... All right, guys. All right. That's uh, been our time for the day. So you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Myths and Misfortunes or Twitter at Myths Misfortune. Or you can search for us using our full name, Myths and Misfortunes. We do pop up. You can also send us an email to mythsandmisfortunes at gmail.com. Our music was composed by McKean Fulbright and our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins. Their websites can be found in the description below. Please rate, review, subscribe. Don't forget. You're forgetting. You're forgetting. Don't forget. Please don't forget. I mean, we for- we also forgot, but it's okay. Yeah. But don't forget. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.